To paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson, when you get locked into a serious beer collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Cheers. Son of a bitch! Give me a drink! Takeover Podcast exclusively uses the Physics Draft Beer System to dispense all of the beers we review. Physics utilizes sonic wave technology to create the ideal density microphone head on your beer. It delivers a fresh from the tap draft beer experience that you can enjoy at home or on the go with no need for any external gas or additives. Just four AA batteries. Physics tasting is believing. Welcome back to part two of our Cicerone episode, our home brewer interview series. We're here with Dave Olson from WisconsinBreweriana.com, and we're going to continue the, the train here with some new beers. We're going to get a little deeper into Dave's cellar collection. We're going to talk about the history of brewing. We're going to talk about the history of beer in Wisconsin. We've got all kinds of interesting information for you, and the reason that we did a part two episode is we, we learned some lessons from episode three. <laughs> we know that drinking <laughs> that many beers all at once in one episode maybe a little too much for some of our listeners so here we go with uh, part two of episode five all right let's well let's talk about the beer we have in our hand right now andy what do so we got starting off episode two we went with uh, urban decay by dark city brewing company out of new jersey and it's an imperial stout that was aged in uh, cabernet barrels this intrigued me when you told me about this, and you definitely get that wine taste. Yeah, the wine really uh, dominates yeah. uh, the, this beer. You get a big wine nose, a lot of grape, yeah. and ton of oak. I get so much oak, which I'm enjoying. The nose is, uh, the I nose don't know, is like but... A, it's a consistent, though, in the front end and the back end. It's not like yeah. you don't get any... It smells it's kind of, <sighs> almost reminiscent of a sour. Uh, it, I, I get that, that as well, that's yeah. That's the grapes. But yeah, it, it has a nose like a sour, which is really off-putting because then when you get into it, there's no sour flavor at all. No, so it's, no. I guess off-putting is the wrong word. Yeah. It's just, it, it throws me off. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, yeah I, I get a lot of that Cabernet and oak off the floral aroma here. And when I chew a little bit of this to my palate, I get a, a little bit more of that influence from the cat. Oh, we gotta, oh, I got to try the chewing. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, a ton of oak. I mean, there's so much oak. I know, is this aged again in oak barrels, or is it just... Nope, just straight Cabernet barrels. All right, wow. Yeah, I, I don't get too much, like, vanilla or any of those kind of oak notes, but you definitely get the, the, the wood from the mm. cask. And, Dave, for our listeners, uh, could you describe that chewing method again? What, what is what, that process that you're describing? What I'm describing is, in my mouth full of beer as I taste this beer, I'm using my tongue to push the beer up to the roof of my mouth almost like you're chewing something in your mouth and basically you're just exposing a little bit more of all those taste bud receptors in your tongue for me it helps uh connect the dots occasionally when i read the label and i don't taste what the label says all right when we ended uh part one dave you were talking about the reasons why you were collecting you got into it with your dad and you just picked it up back in uh, college with uh, some pieces that you found. Now it, it's grown back up again. What specifically um, stands out for you? What do you like to collect? I guess any wills for you as far as like collectible pieces? Um, Are you, do you look for bottles? Do you look for old cans? Do you 
look for there's great tins hanging out yeah so one of the focuses of my collection is that it's got to be wisconsin stuff i prefer the breweries from around wisconsin small towns that are defunct now don't think people appreciate the depth of how many towns around wisconsin had breweries also right here in milwaukee one of my whales one of my favorites is the falk brewing company and that is the only history i have on my website right now but the Falk Corporation, which has now been bought out by Rexnord, the great-grandfather, when he moved to Milwaukee, he started a brewery. And his brewery uh, was right up there with Miller. He was actually bigger than Miller at the time. Blatz, Pabst, and Schlitz. He was one of the big four or five brewers in Milwaukee's brewing legacy. And in 18... 92, his group sold out to Pabst, which put Pabst over the top as far as capacity, but also as far as accounts. The Falk Brewing Company, um, and you'll see some cards on my wall here, had accounts throughout the West. They even had accounts in Mexico. Um, some of those trade cards are written in Spanish, um, which is really cool. I think the history of brewing in Milwaukee is overlooked by all of us as we walk around to all of our favorite locations here in Milwaukee, we don't realize that some of these buildings were passing by. There were breweries there. One of my friends and mentors has documented well into, I think, over 118 breweries that existed in Milwaukee at one time. And obviously, if you think of the ones you can name in one hand, there's a lot more breweries out there that you're unaware of. So connecting the history to brewing is one of my passions. And I think whenever people get me going over a few beers like we are today, I could talk to you guys indefinitely about Milwaukee's brewing heritage and Wisconsin's brewing heritage. At one time, our big breweries were globally the biggest breweries in the globe. So. It's weird to think about it, right? <laughs> and, and, and what's left over there, like if you go to Schlitz Park and you go and look at the Aurora Healthcare building and drive down this really long, like it might be 100 yards long building, that used to be the bottling house for Schlitz, okay? And if you look at the volume of that building, so MSOE has taken over some of the Blatt's Brewing building. One of the bottling buildings is MSOE's biggest building down there in that area. That's the uh, Milwaukee School of Engineering. Correct. I actually started a brewery history tour company last year, and unfortunately I chose a poor weekend, Memorial Day weekend, for my first inaugural <laughs> tour. <laughs> and I had difficulty getting a tour group together, but I was modeling my tours after Discovery World's brewery history tours and my partner was Len Jurgensen who was also Discovery World's historian. I really would like to in this year through my website through maybe your your podcast teach people about some of the brewing history in Milwaukee. I think it's a great opportunity for people to learn and you're all into beer anyway. Uh, I, I think it's a great story and if you like history. The stout we're working on is really warming up now. And I think a lot of those flavors and notes are really starting to pop up for me. What do you guys think? These type of beers always take on that complexity once they get a little bit warmer, you know? Yeah, this stuff's definitely mm. warming up. Yeah, it mellows out a little bit drier. Now, Dave, you were saying about that you knew about the history of cans or bottles. What were you saying? That I'm sure. So let's talk a little bit about the history of cans. Post-Prohibition, there was a company out there you may have heard of, American Can Company, I yes. believe. And my, uh, uh, grandfather worked for American Can Company for 30 years. 
Jim. <laughs> well, you don't need it. So you're gonna, you're this gonna time, really like this. This time, gonna... Jim's putting his grandfather over. Well, <laughs> by we'll putting himself it. forward by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. We'll allow it. So at the time, they were canning food, right? And at the time, you know, you look around my collection here, you see a lot of wood beer cases up against the wall and a lot of really heavy brown bottles. Brewers were shipping beer in kegs and in bottles. And in those bottles, there would be 24 or 36 uh, in a case. It was very heavy. And this company uh, decided to work with a small brewer out east. I'm opening up a the very first beer can advertisement. They partner with Krieger Brewing out on the east coast. What year was that? So this is about 1935, 1936. Oh, wow. wow. And Krieger was a small brewery. Let's say it was approximately the size of Lakefront. And they said, hey, we, we want you to be our test case and put your beer in our cans. And Krieger went, yeah, we can't afford that. And he said, no, no, we'll set you up with a canning line. We'll get you all set up. And, and one of the catchphrases in this advertisement is, half the weight takes half the space. So if you can imagine... You're making thousands or hundreds of thousands of bottles of beer. If you could save half your shipping cost, what a financial gain that would be for your profits. There's such a chain reaction of weight because of fuel, because of there's so much stuff tied to that. And those kind of dynamics even mattered back in 1935. That's amazing. So these guys said, oh, well, you'll you'll set up that can, sure. So the first six months that they had started canning beer, their production went up 60%. And the big guys like Schlitz and Paps went, whoa, oh, this can thing looks like it might be working. And, and it wasn't that this Krieger Brewing Company was a threat to them, but the, there was a lot of truth. You know, there was no more deposit, no more returns, no broken bottles. Remember, when you brew beer in bottles, you have to buy the bottles before you can package it. And broken glassware or glassware that was never returned to the brewery was a cost to the brewers. They set these cans up from the beginning to be lined, just like our modern cans are today. Lined cans protect the beer from the metal. You know, they were 12-ounce cans, and they had to teach people uh, how to open these cans. So if I pull one of these Paps cans from 1935 off my shelf here, I'm going to pass it around with you guys, you'll find it has opening instructions. (laughs) And the very first cans used here's the original opener that would have went with it have how to open the beer can on it so i'm passing this beer can and it says quite frankly this is how you open this (laughs) and if you can imagine that and it has a punch top opener that went with it so it's a lot like the old juice cans that you used to get back in the day where you had to pop an open and the next thought on the topic was... Now, who, who was the first big guy to get into it? Or they all kind of jumped um, on once they saw that? Paps and Schlitz are really the first two early adopters after the Krieger. And, and there were several breweries out, out east as well. Now, this can is from Gettleman, which is another Milwaukee brewery, but it, you'll notice the top... You know, I know you listeners can't see this, but the top has got a cone. It's literally called a cone top. So, Paps did a flat top where you had to hand open it. Schlitz did cone tops really early. They didn't make a flat top because they were trying to purvey a more classy, it's just like a bottle, but it doesn't take up much much space. It's kind of like a can with a mouth like a bottle. It's even got the the pop top. Yeah, is the top exactly the same size as a bottle? I mean, Yes, and it has a bottle cap on it, as you can see. What they, one of the early 
hurdles to getting the public to adopt canned packaging is they thought it was kind of classless. Okay, so Blatz and Schlitz had these palm gardens, these classy, pre-Prohibition era, extravagant. They made beer to be, you know, as Miller's slogan, slogan the, the champagne of beer, right? Mm-hmm. And post-Prohibition, adopting cans, you know, people wanted to have their beer out of a glass. And having a cone top that looks kind of like a bottle, but had some of those qualities that they got from canned packaging, was something that kind of worked its way out. Like a, like a gateway beer. Basically. <laughs> now, from your collection, I can see that you don't have too many of those. Well, I don't specifically collect cans. So earlier in the previous podcast, I mentioned my father and I sold our collection. Right. We probably had 200 different cone tops. This particular one, my father-in-law gave me. Now, he was a plumber, and he was underneath a building here in Milwaukee, and he found this. Wow. never been outdoors, but it wasn't, you know, it's not in perfect condition, but it's it's a great example of a cone top. He even has the original cap. That's but crazy. the premise of beer cans was really a marketing effort and a, a cost savings effort for the brewers. And as you're aware, every single brewer on the planet adopted cans. Because losing the bottles and the cost of shipping bottles and weight of bottles was just a no-brainer. Same thing with our kegs. They went from wood to steel to some steel, some aluminum to aluminum. Today, I think I've even seen polymer kegs from some (laughs) brewers. Wow. You know, it's it's really fascinating the way that history repeats itself. Uh, the fact that many of these brewers avoided going to cans because people wanted the fancy beer in the bottles, you know. And Miller, back in those days, was considered fancy beer. So you wanted the fancy beer in the bottles, and it was tough to get the, the populace, the, the consumer, to switch over to cans. But they eventually did. And now you have something where the craft brewing industry started in bottles. Everybody wanted their fancy beer in bottles. I remember seeing my first Dale's Pale Ale and thinking, what the hell is this? This is an IPA in a can? What were they thinking? <laughs> and now you see you see cans everywhere. You see Dale's 1050 aged in bourbon barrels in a can. You know, you've got ba- bourbon barrel aged beers in a can. And it's really interesting to see the way that the consumer has again adopted the can as a, a perfectly viable source for fancy beers. Yeah, but it's the consumer, but it's also yeah the manufacturer who's doing it for the same reasons. Well, the exact same reasons. Yeah, yeah but, saving a little bit of money on, on yeah. shipping costs. But Oscar Blues started in cans. They've always been cans. Yeah, even, One their, of, even their tappers look like cans. The, the modern argument to me is less about savings and shipping and stuff like it was right after Prohibition. Today, I think a can is more protective of the beer, all right? No light, and it's sealed, and when it's filled, it's, you know, completely purged. There's no oxygen, there's no light. Beer in a can today is still protected from the metal, just like it was back in the 30s with a liner, so it never is in contact with the aluminum. It's quicker to chill it down. If you drop it, it doesn't shatter. It's a great vessel for the beer. It's just a miniature keg. So you think that's now why we're seeing the rise in popularity of crawlers? I, I guess from my opinion that that's more of a, a gimmick. It's a selling gimmick. No, Jesus, I think that's a spectacular idea if we were to <laughs> do again, segue into worldwide stuff. Again, my uh, glass has a hole in it. So. so this next beer we're tasting is out of my cellar, or my boxes. This is Dogfish Head Worldwide Stout. And I would age it, it's not marked, uh, I believe it's about 2009, 2010. This is my favorite Imperial Stout. 
super smooth. It's a perfect example of those dark notes when you first taste an Imperial Stout aging into like dark berry kind of flavors. It's it's really uncanny. This does not taste like the same beer that I tried in 2016. This is incredible. Does it have like a spiciness to it? It has a huge chocolate floral. Yeah. And remember, this this is yeah. beer has been aging. It's a yeah, no, great it's, head. It's, it's amazing. got great legs. This is still the beer I say is my favorite. So yeah, if you're listening and you have the opportunity to grab a couple bottles of Worldwide Stout, throw them in your cellar, age them for what did we say about six seven years yeah. on this one and uh they're gonna be amazing no you're gonna be they're gonna be well worth the wait yeah. definitely a treat thank you that was good i, mean, I get that spice that you're getting yeah. from it too jesus it's almost yeah. like a, a pepper it's almost on the peppery. back it's on the back end yeah. a little spiciness uh, I, I think that might be we're coming just towards the peak of this beer I think this is about as far as you want to age this. I would agree. Yeah. I wouldn't push a lemon any further yeah, than that Yeah, because I'm actually getting kind of a little bit of papery note on the back, and that's start of the back end of aging. So you think maybe last year might have been the ideal uh, the prime, year on yeah. this one? Well, that, that's good for our listeners to know yeah. as far as how long they're aging. I, I've always loved their description but, on the label. A very dark beer brewed with a ridiculous amount of barley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it? the, it's still boozy. And we've talked about a lot of the stouts, how when they're very fresh, they're, they're boozy. And on the nose, behind the chocolate and behind the notes, there's a lot of plum, raisin, and booze. Yeah, it's interesting. Age this long, it almost gets into barley wine territory. Exactly, yep. There's a, there's a really beautiful sweetness behind all of those malt notes. That you just, you won't find this in the first three years of this beer. Well, let's get back more into Dave's knowledge here. Well, so you, so, you, you told us about the can, but you also said you some knowledge about the history of the bottle, too, right? Yeah, actually. So we, we picked up on the can history, post-prohibition, this idea to get rid of these heavy brown bottles and heavy wooden cases that they used to use. But if you take a step back in time, shortly after brewing started in Milwaukee... Let's say that was approximately 1841 to 1850. Most beer was put in kegs. If you were a saloon owner, so one of the, the bottles that Mobcraft found in their construction was from a former saloon owner, you could buy some beer and repackage it in bottles yourself. So the first bottles were sold not necessarily to brewers, but to saloon owners and people who wanted to have some kind of package sales. The very first beer bottles, especially here in Milwaukee, looked like this. And this is a stoneware brewing bottle, late 1860s. And it looks like what you would imagine a stoneware bottle looks like. It's a pint-sized volume. It's very robust. One of the reasons these still exist for guys like me to collect is because of how heavy-duty they were made. At the time when they would re-bottle some beer, or maybe you were a brewer and bottled your own beer, it had to be robust enough to take the pressures of carbonation, because at that time there was still basically bottle condition. So this bottle would have a cork, or what would this Correct. The, the first beer bottles were corked, um, because they knew from wine and champagne that they could cork, and the, the shape of the top of the bottle typically had an edge that a wire bale could help hold that cork in. The problem with the pottery bottles is if they dropped, as you can see on this example, they would chip. 
So once you chip the top, the bottle couldn't be used anymore by the brewer. Uh, he'd have to dispose of it. A, a lot of these, uh, the brewer never saw again, but again, the cost of doing business was to invest in these bottles. So the next bottle that I wanted to show you guys, and for your listeners, I'm just gonna describe it, is called a Hutch. And it's a very short, pint-sized bottle. It's got a very robust, hand-blown, really thick glass, like I'd say at least a quarter of an inch thick. And if you guys hold this and pass it around, you'll notice at the bottom, it has kind of a hexagon or octagon face. And if you look carefully at the lettering that's embossed on this bottle, it'll say John Groff. And John Groff is widely known in Milwaukee as being a soda manufacturer. But very few people know that early in his timeline, he also produced Weiss beers. Well, it was, uh, I believe it was around Prohibition when he switched over to soda production. Correct. In, in as of Prohibition, he quit making Weiss beer at a Weiss brewery and a soda brewery. And one of the things in early Milwaukee bottles is even if the bottle's clear, which usually means it's not a, a brewery bottle, if it has that octagon or what they call a mug base, yeah, that's what I was it is actually likely that it's a Weiss beer bottle. And then if you further read the embossing, it actually says John Graff Brewing Company. We know that example is a Weiss beer bottle. And carbonation is why they hand blew these and made them so robust. Did you have a question? Yeah, what, so you said it's a Weiss bottle, but so, I don't understand so, why the so shape... The shape, that mug base or octagon base, was how they would distinguish what's going into what. So they bottled mineral water, they oh. bottled soda, they bottled birch oh, well. beer and other non-alcoholic drinks, but they put beer in these octagon bottles. So instead there's, of a, instead of a label, it, yeah. it's basically denoting what, what's in the bottle. That it's beer. It's beer in the... Wow, oh, okay. So yeah. as it open, it was open by punching Yeah, them. so it, in this particular example we're passing around with you guys, there you can see some wire. There's a wire bailing, and then the idea in this particular example is that the wire pulled the cap up into that. That's called a Hutchinson. And Hutchinsons were mainly made for mineral water and, and water. And you remember, Milwaukee had access. So like in Waukesha, they had access to artesian wells. Even where the Pabst complex was, when Pabst first chose that location, it was because of a huge artesian well. And the Pabst brewing production actually sucked the well dry. <laughs> but these Hutchinson bottles are real early in the bottle timeline. 1850 to 1870, you had pottery bottles. And somewhere in that range, 60, 70, 80 to the 90s, there were some Hutchison bottles and other glass bottles that were produced. People figured out that brown bottles protected beer better from being light struck. And we started to get to a bottle like this. This is called a blob top. I'll tell you what, before we get to the next bottle, let's crack a bottle. How about it? <laughs> what, uh, what's I'm taking in. over the tap here, Andy? So it's the Unibrew Grand Reserve 17. So it was bottled in 2015. It's a dark ale. Uh, brewed with spices and aged in uh, French oak barrels. Belgian style. A yeah. Absolutely Belgian mm, style. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah the esters are really that. coming over the nose from the yeast, the Belgian style yeast. Excellent head on this beer. Really lacy, and it's... Did you physics this? No. No. It's just, it's, this was just straight ahead for. Yeah, this is, you get that Belgian lace head on it. It's beautiful. The retention is fantastic. Yeah, I'll tell you what, when, uh, when it first came out of the bottle, there was there was a bit of a copper kind of taste that has dissipated as it's warmed up, yeah. and now yeah. it's it's just, it's fruits and berries, and, and just, 
Yeah, so I think similar to wine where uh, you really want to keep beer protected from oxygen, but when you open it up, you do want to get a little bit of oxygen in, in there in order to start to open the beer itself up. And I think that's where the, some of that metallic taste has dissipated because it has oxygenated a little bit. So Dave, uh, lend your lend your Cicerone server skills to this. What uh, what are you getting out of this? Well, beer? Jim's comment reminds me that putting the beer in the right glass sometimes increases your experience. You know, we have tasting glasses here that are in a, just a little flute kind of shape, but they're not necessarily the right beer for this Belgian ale. Maybe a, a better tulip glass with a stem. Opening up to the oxygen or aerating the beer and getting that sensory you know if you're really going to enjoy your craft beer getting the sensory part of your aroma is absolutely key to to the taste and how you experience the beer and it sounds kind of beer snobby but with the smell what i'm getting from this particular beer it completely fits the standards of a belgian strong ale and i i get the little bit from the dark fig and the, the deeper taste in this beer i always smell it first mm. as much as I can to get a little bit better experience. Yeah, fig, fig, plum, the, those are some of Any the... dark kind of fruit. Yeah, raisin, there, there's some some really nice flavors yeah. going on. Hey, it's a beautiful one. brown color. Speaking of raisins, I think that raisin detra extra should be our next one. I want to follow up with the whole glass thing. How much do you prescribe to that as far as like the different glasses for beers? So the glass is not going to change the experience. However, even though we kind of said that, the nose is going to change the experience. So whatever glass you're working with, if you're not actually smelling the beer first, you know, a short sniff and then maybe a big deep inhale, you're not going to have the same taste maybe as what the brewer intended. I, I, I firmly believe that. If, if you're not introducing sense of smell into your tasting experience, you're missing out on a, a lot, not, not just some subtle... If a glass has a tulip shape like your standard sifter does, it's it's taking a wider at the base and concentrating the smell into a smaller, enabling you to take a greater whiff. If you're just using a small, you yeah. know, four ounce taster glass, it's already a concentrated sniff when you're trying it. Yeah, very so, talking about cellaring too. This one actually has right on the bottle Best Buy eleven thirty of twenty twenty. Oh, see, that's interesting. Wow. Because no. it actually has a cutoff, because we we've always been wondering, like, when does it turn? You know? Yeah, we've talked about that. Different methods of measuring when, when a beard's good, when it should be drunk. Uh, I guess it's a little bit easier with the Belgians, because they've been experimenting with these yeasts for so long that I, I think at some point, you know, you put this yeast in a bottle, this is about the year you want to bring that sucker up. Again, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but do you think that's more of a marketing thing? I mean, well, first of all, they may have made the beer in the past, all right? And after trying it a couple of years old, just like we tried my, my Worldwide Stout here, and it's pretty old, and when we decided it's probably on the fringe for Jim's palate, he can detect it's starting to be on the fringe of being good. I think any brewer who makes beer that's to be cellared has an idea from their past experience what the sweet spot is. Hmm. I've had some Alaskan brewery beers. I can't remember which style offhand, but we tried two years old, five years old, eight years old, and two years was the sweet spot. Wow. And I think quite a few beers, the brewers have already experimented 
one of the things I picked up from your podcast with Russ Klish that I thought was really interesting is the Wisconsin Brewers Guild wants to put that hourglass um, mm-hmm. logo on labels. And I think that's a brilliant idea that might differentiate Wisconsin's brewers in the short term until everybody mm-hmm. does that. So you actually know if I buy two of these, I can enjoy one now while it's fresh and a year from now or two years from now, I can try it again and have a different experience. Yeah, it's awesome that you bring that up because that's actually been one of the unifying themes in some of our podcasts. Uh, the reason that we went to Henry from Mobcraft for our, our you know third brewery interview series was because Russ and Jim had talked about Henry as the, uh, not the person who came up with the idea, but the person who came up with the logo on that seller aging icon. And I, I think that's a big theme throughout our podcast is the seller aging programs, the seller aging process, and the seller aging collections that people put together. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get into another beer from the seller, and the Raisinestra I think is up next. Actually, Alex, it's pronounced Raison Detra. And this is Raison Detra Extra, <laughs> which means it's the cast-aged version from Dogfish Head, of course. And so. it's it's brilliant. Uh, even though we were a bit concerned uh, that it might be a little too aged, I think we've hit the prime spot here. The bouquet is fantastic. There's multiple notes of florals and fruit and raisins. It's got a color like a candy raisin. Yeah, it's almost. got a nice ruby. I un- I can't it. describe it anything else than just super smooth. Yeah, it is just uh, so smooth. It, it is an aged beer. Fish. There's not much head to it anymore, but it doesn't take away from the flavor. It's like liquid. Belgian candy for you homebrewers. Absolutely. It's just that color, and it is smooth. Oh, it is very sweet. and boozy. It, the legs sweet, on it, when I roll it in my glass, are just spectacular. Has anyone ever had one of these fresh? I have not. No. This nope. is the first time I've had it. This first. is the only bottle I've ever seen. I bought it, and I decided to sit on it for a special occasion. And how long have you aged this one for? I'm going to guess this is also from uh, 2011 period. Okay. Well, five, so, six years, easy. I don't believe I can drink this beer again unless it's been aged five years. Mm. Yeah. No, I, it's just, I believe I've been spoiled now. It's just I, I don't know that Dogfish Head has made this since this edition. Well, I feel like you've should, wasted uh, this beer on us. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> so, I don't. Like many of your listeners, I would rather share one of my good beers that I know is going to be a good beer with people who appreciate it and, and I think it's fun for us to taste this and experience it together because I'm going to remember it. it's the only bottle I've ever owned yeah it's an experience I'd rather yeah. share with you guys and know that you appreciated it than I just like sucked it down while I was watching the news that's, this, that's uh-huh. not the right way to do big this needs like to be this. made in the candles <laughs> and I think that's that's really one of the fun parts about the podcast and why we started out doing this is not just to experience great beers, which we do, <laughs> you know, but we could do that and not record it. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to record these sort of experiences. Beers that you that the general public just can't get. If you if you at least have the experience of other people experiencing it, you know flavor wise what you're trying to get into. You know you know just spiritually <laughs> what you're well, trying to get into. Well, I would say it's almost like uh, you know you you say the taste of the beer is the smell of the you know all this stuff, but it's also who you're with. You know, exactly. It's like you remember all this stuff. We're just trying to raise awareness for our listeners because, honestly, I mean, none of us will taste anything like this ever again. Huge thank you to Dave for sharing something like this that that's not going to come around again. Yep, beer's better with friends, and I'm glad to share it with all our friends. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Thank yeah, you. I really good. Gentlemen Cheers. Giving me the chance to share this because I, I absolutely love the fact that my investment in this beer, and it was an investment, it was to be enjoyed, and we're enjoying it. So cheers. Yeah. Cheers. And now it'll be cheers. forever recorded in history. Um, and I would like to read for your listeners the, the label. Again, well, you know, one of my favorites is to read Dogfish Head labels. So this is a bulbous brown flavored ale that was brewed with boatloads of big raisins. They do not have a AVV listed on the bottle. Good for them. It's up there. So if you want to get back to the bottle, we discussed stoneware bottles and we discussed the Hutchinson, this kind of like hand-blown, super heavy-duty bottle. And then we start making our way, let's say, late 1870s, 1880s, into different versions of brown bottles that we recognize today. The first ones were hand-blown. There were several glass companies in Milwaukee that used to hand-blow bottles. And the first renditions of these bottles had what they call blob top. So this is all pre-bottle cap. And if I pass this bottle around, what we're observing is this bulbless top. And just like today's modern Belgian beer bottles... It had a lot of extra glass on the top so they could cork this bottle by hand and then put like a wire bale on it to keep that cork from blowing as the bottle conditioned. Again, this is kind of pre-pasteurization, so bottle beer still bottle conditioned in the early use of bottles. When this bottle was out, is this the only um, variation? So when I would buy this beer at this time, this was the only type of bottle top? Um, it, or how many, you know what I'm saying, is, as the transition through the years. All of the brewers were trying new things. You know, one of the dilemmas they had is after this bottle conditioning happened and we had carbonation in the bottle, it was hard to keep that cork from blowing. So after the corking bottle was perfected, we started working with blob top bottles that had bailing wires. So if, if your listeners have ever seen a Grosch flip-top bottle or homebrewers yeah. who have bought flip-top bottles. I'm going to pass this around. This is a Falk Young and Borkop bottle. If you drop that, I will cry <laughs> on your podcast. I weep and I'll probably swear too. So I got a question for you. So the, the blob top, obviously it's a heavier at top. Is that sort of to balance out the weight on the bottom of it too? Um, it's really to give an anchor for a bailing wire or just it was like, specifically just like for today's, the bottling cork. For the cork just like today's bailing wire that we took off that belt. Yeah, that corking cage. That, that corking cage is what I'm calling a bailing wire. It's a little extra anchor that's strong to not let that cork blow. Now, I yeah. have trivia for you. Yes, sir. I was actually at the, the Corbell tour in uh, California, and they were explaining the, um, the turns, mm-hmm. six half turns. Excellent. It's always six half turns for that kind of cage. For the wiring for the Yeah, and the I have cage. no idea why. It's just an old uh, French thing. I appreciate <laughs> learning something new about the, the twists in the bales, because I've always wondered no. why they're there other than no. ornamental. What's really cool about this next bottle, just looking at it, is is the amount of craftsmanship that has gone into it. it you can tell it's not a, a manufactured bottle like we would see today. It's actually got the lines. It's uh, it's got the dimples. It's actually got little air bubbles in it. You can tell that that's hand blown glass. Um, uh, yes and no. <laughs> so the this bottle, um, we're gonna bring it back to you so you see the seam. Okay. Was actually. Probably hand blown to your point, but into a mold. Okay. And if you see the seam on this bottle, 
It definitely does um, have a seam. It, it brings us to the discussion of manufacturing of bottles. Brewers had to invest money in raw bottles if they wanted to sell bottles. So they started to label their bottles. Well, paper labels, as you know, come right off a bottle. Pow. So these bottles we're passing around are all embossed with the brewer's name. So every brewer has bottles, and you may even see on the bottle the words, not to be resold. And it was so that they could get their bottles back. And as we mentioned earlier when we discussed the history of the can, broken bottles were a loss of revenue. Cans, on the other hand, which were much cheaper to produce and support, they were regaining those losses. This next style of top, you can see the shape of the glass still looks like a blob top. And a blob top, just to refresh everybody, still looks like maybe one of your Belgian bottles that had a cork in it. It has that thick glass top so something could clasp. But they started to work on these baling wire, like the Grosch mm-hmm. baling top. I'm not sure why I should have moved that. That's over 150 years old. Yeah, don't break that. <laughs> Who knows what kind of air is um, coming out of It's still in one there. piece, thank God. But... As we exit the era of blob top bottles and different times of closures, I don't know if you guys are all aware, but February 14th was the 125th anniversary of the patent on the crown or the bottle cap. Really? Oh, wow. So you can find bottle cap looking bottles going back just before Prohibition. And here's a bottle capper from the Prohibition era when, of course, we started to bottle our own beer. But bottle caps... And I hope everyone in your listening group at least toasts this month. If you miss February, that's okay. In March, <laughs> you're just slightly behind the times. But in 2017, the 125th anniversary of the bottle cap patent. Yeah. So if you're listening now, time to toast to the bottle cap. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers. to the bottle cap. All right. Well, I think that's a perfect time to uh, jump into the last part of the second segment of this two-part series, and let us do a side-by-side comparison of the two IPAs that we have left. We have the Amber Smash Face, which has been aged a year inadvertently <laughs> by the folks at uh, one of our local liquor establishments, and then we've got the 120 Minute IPA, which was also aged. Five or six years. Five or six years, somewhat inadvertently, because you just kind of found it <laughs> in, in your I, stack I may of have paid too much for that bottle, so I sat on it for a while. Okay. <laughs> so it, let's let's get into a side-by-side comparison. So, Jim, tell me about these two beers. We've got the Amber Smashed Faced, which is the, what did we say, the aggressively hopped American Amber Ale. And then we've got the Dogfish Head 120 Minutes. What, what are we dealing with here? Big, big beers. So the 120 from Dogfish is, what is that, Dave? 18%. Like a billion ABV? <laughs> yeah. Is that? It's, uh, according to the commercial description, too extreme to be beer. A colossal 45-degree Play-Doh. Oof. So Oof. it's boiled for two hours, so that's 120 minutes, continuously hopped. And you'd think with that much hops, it would just strike you as an IPA off the bat. It doesn't. It, it strikes you like a barley wine. Especially it, it, after this much. I meat. thought, yeah. I it, thought it, it tastes like a hoppy barley wine. It, it really does. You get a ton of the malt. It's very malty forward. What, what um, year are we talking about here? What year was this put away? Um, I put this away probably, I would say 2009-ish, 2010. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, it was before they started dating the bottles. 
Though on the label it does say it ages well, which is it does say not what well. we That's expect surprising. out of IPAs. Yeah, but it, it, at eighteen this plus is the, percent, yeah. this is the well, exception um, to the rule. If there's everything that falls into the barley wine ABV range, this is at eighteen percent. Yeah, I, um, I don't know if if I was a BJCP that I would consider this an IPA, right? I mean, it blows the style guidelines out of the water. If 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 you guys chew. You know, do that little palate trick I was talking about earlier. The 120 is super complex. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, when you sniff it, you smell a little bit of the alcohol, but it's not in your face. It's that not technique hot. really it's just a, adds there, another level there's, to your there's taste. There's not level. a lot of hot in this. At 18%, no. do any of you feel that this is a hot alcohol? I'll, I'll not tell you hot what, at all. When I do the chewing method, I get heat. That's yeah. when I get the heat, but yeah. that's the only time. If to, I'm just sipping this down, it's very, very subtle. You just get an explosion of flavors, though, too. You get that heat, but there's so, like you said, it's so yeah. complex. Everything that's exploding in your taste buds. Yeah, what are you, you guys tasting? What are we tasting here? I'm tasting a big sweetness. Belgian candy, almost. It is. Uh, it, it's an expression of the malt of the beer. The, the hops... Uh, if they were there, they they've kind of gone over the years at this point. I don't. I just yeah. I just taste the hoppy barley wine. Yeah, yeah. to me that's no. that's the best way to describe it for me. The malts have coalesced into sweetness. Yeah. I don't know if you get. I'm sure you guys have had a 120 minute IPA from Dogfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First year that it was made, and it's it's super hoppy, obviously, but the malt backbone is it's almost over present. The the malt backbone is kind of a driving force behind that beer. Just to be able to handle that much hops. I'm sure a few years later, it's going to be super hoppy. And we're talking about a few years after that. And this is just, it's sweet, it's malty, but on a on a, on a a different sort of level than you're talking about when, when you first taste a beer, first year out. It, it's very complex and very different. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of aging, too, I mean, it says right on the bottle here from all those years ago, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Uh, age for a decade people, or so. Age for a decade or so. Used to see Dogfish had 120 as the Holy Grail, like Pliny the Elder, so a beer you almost can't get. My more recent acquisitions of 120 have happened at Woodman's. So if you think you can't get 120, uh, it's no longer true in Wisconsin. You can get it every once in a while. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it, now, do you have to be paying so attention and make a few trips once in a while? Yes. This particular bottle, you know, I've been sitting on it for a long time, just hoping to share it with some like-minded individuals. What I understand from the commercial descriptions is 18 to 21% ABV. I think if you drink the beer fresh, which I have done with my Woodman's purchase, it is a very hot alcohol. It's still delicious. Uh, We have proof in our hands that if you let this age for a while, it's just... A different experience. It's it's completely off the hook for quality. Yeah, you know, we've talked about beers that can be cellared, and really the minimum is eight percent. And here we are at eighteen. That's kind of over the top for alcohol. They really gotta work hard to put as much grain in it to but it's produce always, that much yeah, alcohol. But it's uh, it's still weird because go higher alcohol, but not. But I always thought happy beers you don't age. It's ridiculous. You don't yeah, because it's the two. It's the two things kind of cross crossing. This, this is still hoppy. That is ridiculous. Uh-huh. Very subtle. It's in the very hoppy. subtle, but I, subtle. I just took my there. very last sip, yeah. and it was hoppy. It was hoppy. It, God damn. This has a smoother, more of a Belgian strong ale kind of a 
flavor and mouthfeel. I can detect a little bit of hop, very, very subtle. If I didn't know it was 120 minute IPA, I would be hard pressed to call it an IPA. No, you would not. It's, yeah, that's a yeah, good no. point. Yeah. yeah, it definitely is not within the style guidelines of an IPA. Even triple IPAs don't push 18%, so I'm not sure what you would even call it, but I mean, it is really verging on a barley wine. And on that note, what would we say are the style guidelines for an amber uh, smash face? <laughs> an amber ale that's been hopped to hell and back again, and then aged for a year <laughs> in a cooler, <laughs> you know, which is going to slow the aging process to a point, but... This tastes very different than it did a year ago. I remember trying these, you know, straight out of the bottle back uh, last February. Delicious. Delicious. One of the best reds I've ever had because it was just, it was crazy hot. Andy, I know that you, you've tried the Amber Smash Face fresh out of the bottle before. How, how has this one changed? I'd say it's smoothed out a ton. It really has. It really just punched you in the face and kind of blew up your taste buds at first. Fresh, when it was fresh out the bottle, when it just came out. This is, you know, a lot of the floral notes have opened in it, and it's smoothed out a lot. As I taste this, I'm starting to taste a little bit of degradation, so I think it's peak. I don't think I would take this particular bottle of beer and go any longer. How old is it again? A uh, year? It's a year. A year okay. and about two I, weeks. I, I think that if it has a sweet spot, <laughs> we've got there. Okay. I, I don't think this is like a two or three year old sweet spot. I think the smell no, no. is also kind of... I, now, it, I, ha- I, it has a little cardboardy uh-huh. almost kind of yeah. oxidation is the classic yeah. cardboard. No, I picked, I picked this up back in December, and I think that may have been about the perfect moment. Uh, I opened yeah. one of those bottles, and it was it was fragrant in a certain way that I had not expected. It was, it was floral. It, there, there was a real sweet spot there. Maybe that was the tail end of that sweet spot. It's, it's definitely still a tasty beer. Yeah, you still get, I also had to ask if this was made with fruit, because I get a huge apricot on the nose. Yeah, no, not uh, not made with fruit specifically, but I think they're getting a lot of fruit flavor yeah. from those hops and yeah, from, I, and say, from mm, the red uh, the red malts as well from the caramel malts. I, I think both. It's a really great observation. I'm going to guess that one of them is Simcoe because I'm just getting that heavy piney smell and fruit, and that to me says now we could not look up or discover what the actual hops are. But I'm going to say one of them has got to be Simcoe on this. But it is, it's very fruity. But yeah, we were hitting it. Yeah, Again, think, this is actually I think one that's of the a beers. fair assessment. The Simcoe, I think, makes a lot of sense in this beer. It, it's it's got to be drunk fresh. So if you have one, drink it now or wait till the next release. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I think this may have been a one-off. I have yeah. not Ooh. seen it since. Uh, they did not make it this February. Yep. So it's one of their one-off. It may have been a one-off. A, one-off beer, right? Well, yeah. if you have one, No, books, this was not t- even a... Oh, um, Three Floyds does those well, band collaborations, so it's a one-off collaboration that they did with a band. Okay. And so it was a, a collaboration with Cannibal Corpse, um, which I think is more about the the artwork the, I think than the it label, is yeah. than the, yeah exactly well, the label than it is the beer. That's a beautiful Three, label. Three Floyds are into, they're they're a death metal band, and that's three you know the Cannibal Corpse is a death metal band. Three Floyds is into death metal, so they do a lot of collaborations yeah, with fans. heavy metal or death metal bands. And it's Cannibal Corpse is sort of in your face, punch in the face band, hence the name. Well, I think that about does it for us, boys. <laughs> that was 
two amazing beers to finish this uh, two-part series off with. Uh, we've wonderful. had a great time with Dave mm-hmm. Olson. Thank you so much for yeah, inviting thank you. us into yeah. your beer John, my, my, my pleasure. Welcome back every time, man. And I, I think that'll do it for us. So uh, for myself, Alex Kuhn, Dave Olson, Jim Anderson, Andy Kamoski, Jesus and the Vaughn. I don't believe we have any more beer, guys. No more beer.